What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, we are joined by Julia Margaret Zolver to discuss her book, High Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in Violent Context. High Risk Feminism documents the experiences of four grassroots women's organizations that united to demand gender justice during and in the aftermath of Colombia's armed conflict. In doing so, the book illustrates a little-studied phenomenon, women whose experiences with violence catalyzed them to mobilize and resist as feminists even in the face of grave danger. Julia is a Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom and the Universidad Nacional Autonomo de Mexico. Julia, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. Julia, a little about you. What is the work that you do that led you to write this book and become interested in this topic? So I've had a little bit of a winding path, but for the most part, it has all been centered in academia. So I found myself living in Colombia, working for a reproductive rights advocacy organization in around 2014, 2015. And with all of the amazing work that the women I was working with were doing, um, I decided to to go ahead and apply for and study my PhD. So uh, I, I got into the program at Oxford and I began to do some coursework and then I came back to Colombia to begin fieldwork at this incredibly exciting moment right when the country was entering into the final stages of negotiation around a peace process with the FARC, who was at that point in time the largest guerrilla organization in the country. Um, and through contacts I had and work uh, that I was that I had been doing previously, I started to make the acquaintance of these incredible women's organizations. And so much of the work I did with them was in this academic and research capacity, um, they formed and helped me shape what went on to be my PhD. Uh, but I then stayed in the country and have done a lot of different pieces of work. So some academic, some journalistic, some within the development world, uh, supporting projects, for example, for Venezuelan migrant women. And during the pandemic, actually, I, I was housebound, like all of us were, and decided to take the opportunity to turn what had been my PhD thesis into this book, get it out into the world, um, actually also translate it and get it out into the world in Spanish so that it could hopefully uh, reach some more folks than just if it was sitting kind of in a file on my computer. I'm always, I'm a writer. And so the titles of books actually always uh, fascinate me. I know how much time writers spend, right? Thinking of what to title their work. What do you mean by high risk feminism and why do you use that particular phrase? Oh, you've picked on a, a tricky conversation or a tricky subject in that <laughs> using that word feminism was one I went back and forth on and debated back and forth. And actually, even just now, um, in December, I was in Colombia promoting the Spanish book. And the first question that came up with the women I was I was presenting the book to, the women who I who had been working with in these organizations, you know, Julia, why did you call us feminists? And so I think the, the high risk nature of it is uh, comes at a, a few different levels. So the high risk is that participating collectively and engaging in protest under 
the control of these armed groups is a risky activity for anyone. Um, and so, you know, sticking your neck out, making demands, uh, asking for justice in your community can lead to um, retribution violence. So that can be anything from physical punishment to threats to stalking to uh, murder to attacks on your family. And then there's this other level when it comes to the question of women who are doing this. And then maybe even a third level when it's women who are making demands for gender justice in particular. And that's because these same armed groups that I just mentioned, uh, which range from left-wing guerrillas to right-wing paramilitaries, uh, even often with the complicity of the Colombian state, have very specific ideas about what what women's roles should be. And so women participating in these public and political ways is seen as a transgression of what they should be doing. So that's kind of the high risk component. The feminist or feminism component, as I said, you know, feminism continues to be a tricky word in Colombia. Um, I think that it can be used strategically uh, in, in certain ways. It can be used strategically to promote uh, a, justice, a, a justice agenda. I think also it can be used by those who really don't like women's rights as um, a way to undermine the the, these mobilizations to, to, you know, kind of a dirty word to speak badly about what these women are doing. However, thinking about it, and again, in conversation with these organizations, I think all of them are aware that the vision of society that they have does involve gender justice. It does involve women being able to live uh, without violence. It does mean that women are able to get a certain level of accountability for the very gendered crimes that they suffered and continue to suffer within the context of Colombia's armed conflict. And so for me, that vision of gender justice is what feminism is all about. And even though it's a complicated term, and even though there's still kind of that that debate that always comes up, I have to say that I do love that it sparks debate, that it gets us talking, that it gets the organizations I work with, you know, a bit hot under the collar or happy or willing to talk about and identify in, in different ways. So it's it's always a conversation starter, if nothing else. Julia, uh, for, you touched on it uh, a little bit earlier, but I'd, I'd like you to paint a bigger picture of the political conditions that led to a movement demanding gender justice in Colombia at the height of conflict. Absolutely. So Colombia is a country that has been at war in different manifestations since and probably even before its founding as a republic a few hundred years ago. But in the 1960s, we saw uh, this real movement and this development largely against uh, the landed elite, against this concentration of political power being held by a certain class. Uh, and we saw the formation of different left-wing guerrilla groups. So the biggest one was the FARC, uh, who I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of. Uh, the FARC really were one of their biggest uh, fights was for land distribution. They were a Marxist-Leninist organization. As they began to grow in rural areas and begin to fight the state, we saw 
a few years later, the development and the rise of paramilitary organizations, which were formed and often supported by the state to support wealthy landowners. That's a very quick overview, but what happened is as these different organizations began to fight each other, so the FARC fighting the state, the state fighting the FARC, the paramilitaries fighting the FARC, what we saw was this civil war develop where one of the really striking features has been gender-related or gender-based violence uh, in this conflict setting. And so that can look like a lot of different things. It can look like conflict-related sexual violence. Um, and we've seen in uh, recent years through some of the transitional justice mechanisms that, uh, you know, around about 30, 35,000 women have reported being raped in the context of the armed conflict. It also looked like mass displacement. It looked like uh, killing of men and women for their political views, for simply being associated with an organization. So, for example, if the paramilitaries came into a town that had been a FARC stronghold, they would often attack villagers and people who lived there for being FARC sympathizers, whether or not that was accurate. But this practice of using women and women's bodies and attacking women and controlling women, as I mentioned, is one of these key features of the Colombian conflict. And so in so many of the uh, the locations and the, the villages that I worked in, in the past, the women uh, couldn't participate publicly, they couldn't uh, congregate, they couldn't speak back to these armed actors who were trying to take control of their town. And even if they didn't, even if they were effectively minding their own business, there was always the risk that in this attempt to gain not only territorial control, but also social control, that they and their bodies might be used as these battlegrounds to uh, push the the locals into submission to exert dominance to really display this incredibly militarized form of masculinity, which uh, was enacted by these different armed groups. And so, what we see then is these women who have become victims of conflict-related violence. And in my book, what I document is when they began to come together for the first time. Um, many of them had been displaced to other cities, other towns, and they began to come together and slowly talk about what had happened to them and realize that this wasn't something that they had deserved or something that they um, had just happened to them uh, as an individual. It wasn't something that they could have prevented, but rather that it was part of a much broader strategy of war. And so when they began to understand that they had suffered these crimes together and that they'd suffered these crimes as part of this broader strategy to, to as I said, push uh, the community, to push civilians into submission, that allowed them to gain and start to build these solidarity movements and also to start thinking about what it would look like to ask for justice, not just as victims of the armed conflict, but specifically as women who had suffered gendered crimes in the context of the armed conflict. Did either the FARC or the Colombian government ever ask women for support and solidarity? And how did the women uh, respond? Sure. So the women I talk about uh, very much are those who mobilized uh, out of civilian spaces. But the FARC themselves uh, were an organization that had around 
a third uh, of their their members were women. And so uh, this was an organization that allegedly uh, had a gender equality component to it, to its ideology. Uh, They also did at times ask or force civilians into supporting them. So for example, as I was mentioning before, with that, that idea of being a FARC sympathizer often happened because the FARC would come out of the jungles or come out of the mountains and ask local women to cook for them, to clean their uniforms, to let them take their houses. I say ask, there wasn't much of a choice. There wasn't much room to say no to these armed groups who uh, were, were asking for this kind of support. But there was... In, in, I'm not, I can't deny that there was support for their mission and their ideology and their vision uh, from a lot of people within the Colombian population, particularly within the rural population. That said, uh, these populations were clearly not in favor of the violence and the, the war that came into their communities uh, in the crossfire of this fighting between the state and the FARC. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Julia Margaret Zilver about her book, High-Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in Violent Context. Julia, I want to walk through some of the terms uh, and and groups uh, that you uplift in your book. What is the League of Displaced Women? The League of Displaced Women is the first case study that I really dive into in the book. It is an organization, a grassroots organization that was born in the late 90s in the Caribbean coast of Colombia, so in a slum neighborhood outside of the city of Cartagena. And this organization uh, came to, to light or came into the world when women who had been displaced from all over the region suddenly found themselves living in close proximity in this slum neighborhood. They had been kicked out, displaced from their lands, from their homes. They'd had to flee with their children and whatever they could carry. And they found themselves living in these improvised houses in this this slum. And at the very beginning, they started to know each other and started to chat mainly around pretty practical issues or practical needs. So how could they come together to feed all of their kids? How could they come together to raise a little bit of money to support uh, one of their sick neighbors? But over time, and with the appearance of this really special leader, Patricia Guerrero, they began to talk about what had happened to them. And they began to realize that some of the experiences of violence that they'd had were shared in that they'd experienced the same thing. And that this began to create this collective identity whereby they decided that they were stronger as a unit or as a collective than as individuals. And so they founded this organization, the League of Displaced Women, to begin to engage in this high-risk feminism, to begin to make demands for justice, to begin to uh, think about what accountability would look like and also what it would take for them to have some level of peace, to have kind of some level of dignity in a context where they feel as though, and they felt as though that had been taken away from them. Julia, staying on this theme of uh, stronger, right, as a collective, 
Talk to us about the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo and their theory that because they were mothers, that they might face less repression than their men. What? Talk to me about that, and then I'd like to know what the outcomes of their organizing were and what price they paid uh, for their actions. Sure. So the Madres de Plaza de Mayo are this really iconic example of mothers and grandmothers who, um, during the Argentine dictatorship in the late 70s and early 80s, decided to come out and protest for their children who had been disappeared by the military junta. So by disappeared, this means that young people, often politically active people, were taken, um, kind of erased off the face of the earth. Their bodies were often never found. They were in clandestine torture centers. Many of them were killed, uh, but never uh, their bodies were never found. And so they were referred to as disappeared. They just vanish from one day to the other. And what these mothers decided to do was to go out and to march in the Plaza de Mayo, an iconic spot in Buenos Aires, to ask for information from the state about the whereabouts of their children. And what was really interesting is that the, the icons they used, the narrative they used was really around motherhood, around we are mothers, everyone in the state have mothers, uh, even you within the military junta have mothers, and kind of drawing on cultural narratives about motherhood, about the Virgin Mary, uh, they used and this this unique political opportunity to uh, ask for information about their children when everyone else who was out mobilizing or protesting was being disappeared or being killed. And there was a really unique political opportunity for them to do that, given that cultural meaning around motherhood that I described uh, just before. And so those narratives that they had and those ways of mobilizing uh, allowed them certain successes uh, in terms of great uh, generating a lot of international um, awareness about the issue. Uh, in some cases, uh, very few they did manage to get some information about what was going on, but they really serve as this image or as this um, kind of vision of what women can do. Women who are often seen as being uh, inside the home, as not being political, as not protesting, as not exposing themselves to danger. Uh, they they did all of this in a moment where that kind of protest hadn't really uh, been done in, in Argentina in that way. And so they were successful in terms of creating a narrative around justice, around pushing for um, for memory and for historical memory in the aftermath of the conflict. But that's not to say that what they were doing wasn't dangerous. And even though they were mothers and even though they were drawing or kind of hoping or betting that because they were mothers that they had a certain level of protection, uh, there were members of the Madres who were themselves disappeared and who were themselves attacked. Um, but within Latin America, they are seen as this visionary and really iconic example of women's mobilization when so often we think about protests in terms of male protests and in terms of men leaders and men protesters going out to, to affect this change. Julia, um, I want to continue with the stories um, of, of the women that, that put their lives on the line. Uh, talk to us about Sandra. 
Oh, Sandra is a very special woman. Um, Sandra is a member of an organization at the other end of Colombia. So I spoke before about the Caribbean coast and Sandra is a member of an organization um, at the border with Ecuador in a province called Putumayo. And when I first met Sandra, she was in a little tiny town right down by the border with Ecuador. And she was uh, working with an organization called the Women Weavers of Life, the Alianza de Mujeres Tejedores de Vida, the Alliance, the Alianza. And the work that she was doing uh, really was around women's political empowerment, women's economic empowerment, women's access to justice in the aftermath of Colombia's armed conflict. And I say that with a big asterisk because uh, the conflict hasn't ended. It's ended in in certain iterations and certain actors have stopped um, participating. But the the conflict does uh, sort of wage on in different ways and with different actors. But when I first met her, uh, she was operating in with, with the organization in this moment where they felt as though they had some space to do this activism, to do this mobilizing for gender justice after the peace accords had been signed in 2016. And so she was in her community encouraging women to uh, start small businesses. She was getting them to denounce what had happened during the armed conflict to different justice institutes. She was getting them to learn about their rights as women and to maybe even get involved in local government. And this was, I think, you know, 2017, 2018. But by the time I, I went back um, a few years later, kind of end of 2019, things are really different. And the security situation had um, become significantly worse. And so, as I alluded to before, even after the peace accord and the demobilization of the FARC, other armed groups, so paramilitary successors, narco groups, um, other left-wing guerrilla groups, started to come into the territories that had been formerly occupied by the FARC and were trying to control them because these are territories that have very valuable assets, including coca, which is a plant that's used to make cocaine. And Sandra, who had been this very open, very public activist with the Alianza, started to get more and more threats from armed groups. Uh, She was getting threats. Her daughters were getting threats. And so by the time I met up with her again, she wasn't in the tiny little town at the border. She was in the departmental or the provincial capital a few hours away because she was worried for her life. But this is a woman who survived um, some pretty horrific violence in her youth, again, in this context of armed conflict. She didn't know what to do or where to go. And eventually she met the women of the Alianza who had formed, again, in this really heightened moment of armed conflict in the late 90s and early 2000s to protect women and to create that women's solidarity I was talking about before in the case of the League of Displaced Women. And so Sandra continues in in different ways um, to work to promote gender justice despite the risks that 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 entails for her and the target that that puts on her head, particularly as these armed groups become more and more powerful in the province where she lives. There's another woman that you talk about. uh, I don't want to get her name wrong. The first woman you talk about uh, being on the bus with. 
great. So Angela is a member of the League of Displaced Women, who uh, was the organization I was mentioning earlier. Um, Angela has a particularly tough story. Uh, She is from a province on the Caribbean coast, and she, over the years, uh, particularly as fighting got incredibly bloody between the paramilitaries and the FARC, um, she lost different loved ones. She was forced to displace herself and her family multiple times. And she ended up in El Poisson, in this slum neighborhood, where many of the women from all around the coast were displaced to. And this was in the late 90s, and, and she really was having a hard time making ends meet, having this really um, kind of sad moment in her life, this, this horrendous moment in her life, particularly after her husband was murdered. And she made acquaintance with the League of Displaced Women and with Patricia Guerrero, the leader, and began to participate. She began to learn that the kinds of violence that she had suffered had also been suffered by others. She began to think about what what it would mean to be a member of a group, to have solidarity, to think about the psychosocial benefits of being able to talk for the very first time about what had happened to her, um, and also to engage in the league in the league's other activities around searching for money and resources to build what went on to be called the city of women, this small little neighborhood where each woman got their own house and finally got their, what they call their dream of a dignified life after having been displaced. And so she knew that these benefits, these both emotional and psychological benefits, and also the more material benefits of being part of a group that it could apply for money or funding, a group that it could apply for reparations through the country's transitional justice programs was going to be beneficial for her, even though being part of a group does put more of a target on your back, does expose you a bit more and contributes to that high-risk nature of the high-risk feminism that I talk about. And so in the book, uh, what what you were mentioning, uh, the the sort of vignette you're mentioning is when Angela and I were on a bus. We were traveling from Cartagena to Barranquilla, another city a few hours away, to participate in this women's march for peace, this women's big uh, protest day in the build-up to the signing of the peace accords in 2016. And Angela, you know, was really talking to me a little bit about her background and about how even though she knew that being part of the League of Displaced Women was risky because it's risky to participate in these public expressions of gendered collective action, that she she couldn't imagine anything else. She couldn't imagine not being part of this group that brought so much solidarity to her life and to her experience. You are listening to Law and Disorder. We are in conversation with Julia Margaret Zulver about her book, High Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in Violent Context. Julia, I want to ask you the question you start your book with um, and have you answered. (laughs) Why and how do women decide to risk their individual and collective safety by mobilizing for gender justice during periods of violence? Well, the answer to that question comes with how we think about the high-risk nature of the mobilization 
and also the potential benefits of being part of these organizations. So as I was mentioning before in the case of Angela, absolutely joining a women's organization puts a target on your back or you know, shines a spotlight on your head. It's a woman who is participating politically, which, as I mentioned earlier, is seen as a transgression of what women should be doing. Women should be at home. They should be taking care of their kids. They should be taking care of their husbands. And they should not be making demands for peace and justice in this public way. And so given these dynamics of how gendered violence was used within the conflict of the armed context, the context of the armed conflict, we know that women who spoke out were punished for doing so and were violently punished for doing so. And so as you say, the question I ask is, why would anyone do that? Why, if you know that the risks can be so high, would you decide to go out and join these organizations as opposed to just staying at home and minding your own business? But what I found as I was talking to women around the country over a series of years is that they didn't think about those risks without also thinking about the risks or the generalized dangers of just being a woman living in this town. So staying home, minding your own business, keeping your head down doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be safe from armed violence or armed conflict. They experienced this themselves before they had mobilized, before they joined organizations. Many of them had suffered conflict-related sexual violence while they were minding their own business. And so, yes, joining an organization absolutely increases some of that risk. But on the one hand, the risk differential between being part of an organization and just being a woman living in these Colombian towns uh, isn't as big as perhaps it would seem at face value. And on the other hand, there are benefits that only come from being part of the group, only come from joining the league or the Alianza. And these benefits are psychological in terms of feelings of solidarity, suddenly feeling as though you've got other women who are backing you up, who are there to take care of you, there to talk to you if you want to talk about what's happened in the past or to a shoulder to cry on if you want to remember some of the trauma that you've gone through. And also, as I mentioned, some of these more material benefits. So being able to apply as a collective for money or resources to start a project or apply as a unit for collective reparations or pool together your resources to apply and take a case, a political case, a legal case, sorry, to uh, the Colombian state and then to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. None of that would have been possible by one single woman alone. Yet in union or in these collectives, they were able to pool their resources, pool their knowledge, uh, pool their strength and solidarity to really affect some change. So the why question, why do these women decide to participate in risky ways, can be understood, as I've mentioned, when you think about those potential benefits and think about them in comparison or in relation to that risk differential where simply being an everyday Colombian woman is already a risk. So participating in a slightly more risky activity becomes justifiable in comparison. 
when it comes to the how question, and I, I won't get into it too much because it, it draws a lot on social movement theory, which gets a little bit academic and uh, maybe not uh, of the most interest to your listeners, but uh, I talk about this these four pillars of action where women um, create strategies and create paths and create engage in behaviors that allow them to uh, push this this gender justice agenda. And those are around building collective identity within the group, um, building social capital. Uh, within themselves and also vis-a-vis different people in society. So different institutions, different development organizations, uh, different funding bodies. They also use legal techniques. So they find ways to frame what happened to them in terms of the language of the state, uh, in terms of the laws and the acts that the state already has in place to highlight that what happened to them was against the law and that they do deserve legal accountability And then finally, uh, they engage in acts of certification, which are basically protests and public displays that uh, legitimize them as actors uh, in front of other actors who then have to take them seriously. Julia, you spent so much time with these women and in these communities who are living with the daily pressure, the daily threat of violence, sexual assault, death, what coping skills did you see them utilize so that they continue to get up every day and make that choice? You know, that's a tough one. And I'd say if if I were to ask them this, which I did so many times, they'd kind of shrug their shoulders and say, you know, what, what other choice do I have? But I, I think it actually goes a lot further than that. And I think that that Um, kind of undersells the real solidarity and the real strength and bravery that they have been able to generate. These women are incredible. And so much of where they get that strength comes from being in these organizations where they know that if they're having a bad day or the moment that one of them falls or needs support, that there are others around her who are going to pick her up, to buoy her up, to... Um, carry her on their way. Um, one of the things that another woman who who features in in that first chapter about the League of Displaced Women always used to say to me is the pain of one is the pain of all, and that's something a motto that they really live by. It's that feeling of having greater purpose. It's that feeling of being part of an organization that is making a change, that is slowly and painstakingly allowing them to access some of this gender justice that they so desperately are fighting for. Uh, so I think, you know, it's it's A, that these are incredibly strong and just inspirational women who are making a choice to continue to fight a system and to fight a context which has oppressed and attacked and harmed and ignore them. But also, on the other hand, kind of doing that through this creation of solidarity, these shared identities, these practices and narratives of the pain of one being the pain of all. And in doing that and knowing that there's something bigger, that uh, their voice is part of a collective voice, that their actions are part of a collective action. I think that's 
how they manage to cope with this ongoing violence, um, the ongoing stresses, the ongoing um, inequalities that they that they face on a daily basis. Julia, what were the conditions when you came to the end of the time you spent with uh, the women and what should we be aware of what is happening on the ground in Colombia today? So that's, you know, a really interesting question. And I think what was so interesting and and eye-opening about the time that I spent in Colombia, which as I mentioned, was originally for some different work. But in terms of the field work was 2015 until 2019. And then I I continued to live in Colombia until 2021. Was that we saw this, this real shift. We saw this shift away from a decades long armed conflict between the FARC and the government. When I arrived and was doing work with the League in 2015 and 2016, it was a moment of such hope, hope that the peace accords would be signed, that the conflict would be over, that there would be justice, there would be reparation, there would be accountability, and most importantly, that there would be peace. And as the accords were signed and as uh, the years kind of rolled on, there was a moment where things were peaceful, where women were able to participate publicly, where violence was not knocking at their door every single day. But as we discussed earlier in the the case of Sandra, the peace process was not implemented in Colombia and the peace process was not implemented quickly enough in Colombia. So it was signed in late 2016, it was this document that had all of these amazing provisions for gender equality, for uh, gendered reparations, for understanding how women had lived and suffered the conflict differently because of their gender. But in 2018, a very conservative government who had been against the peace process in the first place was elected. And what they did is they really hit the brakes when it came to actually implementing those chapters of the peace accord, particularly in rural areas. And so what we saw was that in areas where the FARC had demobilized, had left, had handed in their weapons, that other armed groups started to move in and started to use violence again at really extreme levels to control those communities who lived in the territories that they wanted to dominate. And in many of these territories, what that looked like, what the some of the first signs of what that domination looked like was targeting and attacking social leaders and human rights defenders. And so when it was women who had taken on this public role, who were out there like Sandra promoting women's empowerment, these armed groups lashed back and started to threaten and stalk and attack and disappear and in some cases kill these women. I mean, absolutely, they were doing it to men as well. They were doing it to men. And if you look at the numbers of social leaders who have been killed, which is well over a thousand since 2016, the numbers are are much higher when it comes to men. However, when it comes to women, we see that there's that gendered backlash element to it, that understanding and that kind of violent action that isn't only about silencing their social activities, but also about punishing them because they're women. 
So as I was doing field work in 2018, 2019, beginning of 2020, what I saw is women telling me it's getting bad again. It's getting really bad again. It's getting like it was in the old days again. And so what they were telling me through that is that these violent actors, these armed groups were back on the scene were attacking them, were threatening them, and that just because a peace process had been signed, it didn't actually mean that peace had come to their communities. And when I was last in Colombia in December um, to launch the Spanish book, I, I was able to bring some of the social leaders from Putumayo, from that southern province, um, up to Bogota to do some events with me, to, to sit with me and speak at some panels. And they were clear, you know, 2022... Absolutely, what is happening in their territory is an all-out war, and that women, just as they were all throughout uh, the the war with the FARC, women and women's bodies are being used as territories to control and territories to use violence on to to control uh, civilian communities. And so, while absolutely uh, there, these women continue to be active. Um, they continue to exert their agency. They continue to empower other women. They're doing so in a difficult context and in an increasingly violent context. But I will end this little section without being entirely um, hopeless in that in June last year, we saw the election of Colombia's first ever left-wing president. Um, and he ran on a platform of actually implementing the peace accord as it had been written. And what's most interesting to me, at least, is that his running mate, his VP, his vice president, is a woman named Francia Marquez, who herself is a victim of the armed conflict, was a social leader, has been a member of women's organizations for her entire adult life, participating in what I would tend to call high-risk feminist organizing. Um, she's Afro-Colombian, she's poor, she's from a rural area, she's a victim of the armed conflict. And this is the first time that we've ever seen someone like her with her profile uh, in a seat of actually holding power in Colombia. So this government's been in power for, you know, six, seven months. They say they're implementing the peace accord. They say they're bringing this gendered approach and this gendered lens to how they want to govern. I would say for the most part that time will tell whether that's going to actually manifest. But what I will say is that they're currently in peace talks with the, the country's now largest guerrilla organization, the ELN, and that they have women, in the, the, women on the negotiating table. They have women's issues at the fore. And so hopefully we can cross our fingers and look forward to a future where uh, at least the peace accord as written will be implemented to some degree, and at least those experiences of women's uh, mobilization will be recognized by those who hold power, so the government. Um, and in the meanwhile, the women who I continue to be in touch with in the League, in the Alianza, in the Alliance, in the other two organizations we, we didn't talk about today, they, may, they remain active and they will keep uh, pursuing gender justice, even though this is a high-risk activity for them. All right, Julia, we are going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. 
You're listening to Law Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Julia Margaret Zilver about her book, High Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in Violent Context. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.